Today on The Point with Hyke Ballion, musician Eric Allen drops by to talk about his debut album. First, I talk to Michael Wester, the founder and CEO of True Run Media, and a lifeline for Beijingers looking for timely news about COVID-19. It is Thursday morning in Beijing, and local education boards have decided to close public and private schools weeks before the scheduled Chinese New Year's holidays. That follows the news yesterday of six new local transmissions in Beijing's Daxing district. The reason I know about these new cases, and pretty much anything related to COVID-19 in Beijing, is because of the man sitting across from me in my studio. Michael Wester is the founder and CEO of True Run Media, which publishes the Beijinger, Beijing Kids, and Jing Kids. And over the last year, he's been helping keep thousands of Beijingers like me safe and sane through a WeChat group called Safe and Sane. Michael, welcome to the point. Thank you. Before we get into your work at True Run Media um, and the Beijinger, I wanted to ask you: This has been a crazy year. How have you kept yourself safe and sane? Just by keeping up with things, I mean, and trying to trying to digest things in a rational manner. I, I have ha- I happen to have had the experience of living through SARS in Beijing in very similar circumstances, running the same company I run to this day. So I sort of had the starter version of COVID-19. And I know exactly what was, because of that experience, I know exactly what was going to happen, particularly amongst the foreign community. According to my analysis, I would say uh, of the of the foreigners that live in Beijing, you probably have 30% who have zero Chinese period. You probably have another 30% who have some listening and speaking ability, but zero reading ability. And then the last 30%, I can count myself amongst these, are semi-literate in Chinese, in Chinese writing. So you're able to access newspapers and information. And even in today's digital world, most information is coming through text. Um, so, and I guess in a certain, to a certain extent, videos. But for the most part, most news is coming out via either uh, text-based reports, right? So uh, I knew from my experience in SARS that... Uh, Foreigners, first of all, didn't have any access to local information. So even say like the China Daily or the Global Times is kind of a day after newspaper. It's reporting about what's been reported about essentially uh, in English. So the Chinese news sources are inaccessible to most foreigners. Uh, So they're not getting the news. Uh, second of all, when they do, if they can access the news, they kind of are skeptical that they may be hearing the the real truth. You know, um, there's uh, whether you're an American or a Chinese or a person from any other uh, country, you probably are somewhat suspicious of the party line, right? <laughs> so people are uh, people are naturally skeptical, and that breeds a lot of paranoia and a lot of rumor mongering and a lot of just irrational behavior. What are your sources? I use two main sources. First is I monitor social media, but I never take what I see on social media as fact, as 
I don't think anyone in the uh, modern world does because things travel so fast on things like Twitter and Weibo and the Chinese versions of Twitter and things. And half of what you see ends up to be just a silly rumor. So I wait for the, I use, I use um, two or three main newspapers that are generally uh, always avoiding the rumor. Like most Chinese media, they're mostly state-owned, but they have a good reputation for being accurate and being timely with the news. So I just monitor their uh, websites, their apps, and their WeChat accounts. Uh, how many subscribers do you have? Everything in WeChat has to be taken with a grain of salt. I have 10 groups, and each one has a maximum of 500 people in them. That's why I have to have 10 groups, because they cap the group size at 500. But um, in my experience with WeChat, any 500-person group has about 400 people who just joined it and stopped paying attention. So, okay, technically 5,000 people, but actually people paying attention, probably more like 1,000, <laughs> I'd say. Do you update yourself? Who helps you update? Well, I do most of the updates personally. Uh, I do have one of my staff members who's also a co-administrator, and he does the statistics. Um, but we, you know, we do this on a very local level for a couple of reasons. One is I simply don't have the time to to invest in covering the COVID-19 crisis on a national or on a worldwide level. Um, and my belief about it is that it's primarily a local issue. Um, I run a media company and I could exploit this a lot better than I could, than I am doing in the sense that I could make sure that my media products get a lot of views by putting a lot of information in there that would scare people. A uh, good example is is um, roaring through the headlines last week or earlier this week was, oh, ice cream is contaminated, right? Okay, so, you know, the, some of the other more, I would say, ethically compromised or, or, uh, or uh, not well-aligned accounts, uh, WeChat accounts, will we'll send a, a message out saying, WeChat, you know, ice cream is contaminated because that gets people clicking and, and, and anxious, right? Turns out that it was a local brand of Tianjin ice cream. Uh, it was in, you know, 165 kilometers away from Beijing, found in one store. Yes, it's, it's, it's not something that I would say is totally insignificant, but it has almost no impact on Beijing because it's so far away and because it's a local, it's a regional brand that's not really even popular here. So I thought, well, okay, when I see this information, what purpose would it serve to me to tell our readers about this other than making them anxious? So I didn't, I didn't censor it. I just decided that, look, look of, of the 10 or so messages I'm going to send in here today, which, which ones are the ones that people could actually, would, do I think will um, impact people's lives the most and are essential to know? And yet anyone can post on this group, not just you. Anyone can sort of ask questions or, or write or whatever. And, and one of your rules is that, um, you know, if someone posts any information, new transmissions, new quarantine rules, whatever, they need to provide a source. It's, it's almost like a crash course in journalism. You just have to sort of, you know, show your work. Why not just lock down the group, though, so that it's only you? WeChat doesn't have that function. You can't, you can't have a uh, broadcast only. I mean, essentially, my platform with the Beijinger or Beijing Kids is kind of a broadcast only platform. But it doesn't have the ability to, you have to, WeChat groups by nature, you, everyone can contribute by, by default. And there's no way, you can kick people out. But 
you know, the thing is, like, I, I'm a news junkie. I always have been. I always love to, when I was, the, my first experience in journalism was in a high school newspaper. And I just love to be the news breaker, you know. Oh, look, this happened, you know. There's nothing, there's no thrill for me that's greater than being able to sort of, you know, be the first to tell people something, right? But there's, but in the age of social media, when everyone wants to do that, I understand why people do it, but Sometimes it just, I think people do it reflexively without thinking. Most people are sharing things on the basis of reading a headline or, you know, um, just yesterday. In fact, a very good example was um, the way the way information is, the way this situation is being handled in China right now or in Beijing right now. I can only speak is, okay, someone is diagnosed with the virus and they bring them, they, they first do all the testing, confirm their case, and then they do a, a um, contact tracing with them, where I think they, it's actually, it's, it's, we have this belief that I think it's technology-based, but I think mostly it's, it's case, what do you call this? Like you're actually sitting there with the patient and say, what did you do last Thursday? What did you do last Wednesday? What you, and they're saying, okay, I went here, I took the subway here, I did this, right? So then what happens is they, they let's say this person, and I'll use totally fictional uh, place names just so people don't freak out here. But let's say it's, you know, let's say this guy lived in District A and he worked in Building B, right? So the case, they call him, they call him a District A case, but he works in District B. So they got to go check out his office on District B. And maybe he also was a frequent visitor to that one um, restaurant, Restaurant C, outside his, his um, place of work. So what happens is they gather this information and they don't freak everyone out by all of a sudden saying to everybody, oh my gosh, he's been on the subway, he's been everywhere. Hey, everybody just, you know, run away or hide at home or whatever. They go and they actually examine, they do testing, they do sampling, they've closed malls, they've closed stores, they, 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 they test everyone in the store, they test for the environment to see if there's any residue and all this. Kind of. And then after they've done that, they tell people, all right, today we did this and we did this and we did this. Um, so what's happening though is like when people, if and I understand people are shocked and surprised when all of a sudden they see an ambulance outside the building across the street and they immediately say, "There's new cases I can see because look, there's an ambulance right there." Well, they're testing thousands of places around the town because they're super super thorough, and not every place is a outbreak of a new case. And so the other day, uh, several people in Haidian. Uh, a mall was closed and a couple of other places I think were investigated or tested. And immediately some, you know, people sent me 10 or 15 different posts of people saying, look, I know it's my place that's contaminated now. I found a case. We all know they're hiding it. And no, they're not. <laughs> they didn't find the case. They were investigating the trail of the person who was confirmed. one of the first pieces I read by you was, you know, the headline was stay where you are, Beijing, it's your safest option. It turned out to be very, very good advice. But of course, you know, I read your piece when I was in British Columbia, you know, uh, and so it was a little bit too late for me. Fast forward one year, uh, we're not too far off from the Chinese New Year holiday, a time when a lot of people, hundreds of millions of people actually travel around China. And the Beijing government has strongly recommended that people stay home for the holidays. Um, 
and, and some communities have, you know, have said it stated that they require uh, a negative test or quarantines to enter their cities, but no travel bans just yet. What is the risk for both locals and expats alike of leaving Beijing during these holidays? In all honesty, the risk of contracting the virus is infinitesimally small on an individual level. However, if virtually everyone has that same attitude, that's how a pandemic gets started. So what irritates me is people who hear this news that the government is saying, look, we recommend you stay home. We're not banning you from leaving. We recommend you stay home. Not, please cancel all non-essential travel. And the first reaction from a lot of people is, well, where can I go, though? Like, which parts do not have the virus? Because I cannot possibly spend a week at home. I have to go on a vacation. And I say to myself, look, yeah, you have no risk, maybe, on a molecular level. But just your behavior multiplied by millions of people is why places like the United States are in really bad condition right now. So when my family and I got back to Beijing in August, you know, after two weeks of quarantine, it took us a little bit of time to get used to the idea of, you know, that we can go to restaurants, we can go to bars, we can go to friends' apartments, you know, whatever. Because for months, we weren't able to do that. Um, right now, we're in my home studio. Um, neither of us are wearing masks at the moment. And, you know, I've been I've been avoiding posting anything on social media because uh, I don't want my friends and family to get sort of get the get the wrong idea because they're living in a very different reality right now. So last week, my wife posted this photo on Facebook of us. We were at Jingye with some other families and a friend who's super smart, someone I really respect. He, he said, OK, I'm going to quote him. Um, my impression is China has it all under control, but one of my son's professors had to fly home to China because his father had just died of COVID. Are you confident the story you are hearing is complete? I didn't answer him, but like, how would you have answered that question? Am I confident in, that the story you're hearing is complete? I would believe that, yes, the story we are hearing is complete. Uh, from the very beginning of this, and even way back in the SARS era, which was a very different era because even back then, most people didn't own mobile phones. That was kind of a weird thing to have a little mobile phone. And text, SMS text messaging was like the breakthrough new technology. Some people had it, some people didn't. You know, oh, you can receive a text message on that? Wow. Um, people were immediately skeptical that China could possibly want to do anything but cover it up. Okay, There have been missteps along the way. But I believe from my personal perspective that China learned a valuable lesson about not not being forthcoming with information about uh, pandemics during SARS. So those of you who may not be familiar with it, what happened back then was they did, in fact, not let people know. Uh, they were very quiet about it because they were worried. And they, uh, in some sense, they were worried about people panicking, which is a rational actually actual attitude right don't panic people because what's going to happen if we say something bad is happening now um the who they i don't I, i'm not really sure how the relationship there happened but the who stepped in at some point during the sars crisis and said to china look it's in every it's in man yours and mankind's best interest for you to just fess up and be let's let's have it straightforward so I think that what we're hearing now is the full, is 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 lessons learned from 15 years ago. 
which is that yeah, on the local level, you can and the, it, it, and given the level, the size of the administration of all of China, there's bound to be idiots, corrupt people. Uh, people are scared they're going to get fired or criticized if something if if they reveal something. So that's why you you know you you'll find stumbling points along the way, right? But for the most part, I believe that everyone understands that. Guess what? The best way to control this is tell everyone what's happening, so they actually act rationally on that information. Concealing it does nothing but give more opportunity for the virus to spread. Moving on to your day job, True Run Media owns three publications. There's the Beijinger, Beijing Kids, and Jing, Jing Kids. Uh, what are they? Uh, well, the long time ago they were we used to call them magazines, but right now two of the three products don't actually have any magazines associated with anymore any, anymore. I often struggle to say what we actually are. Are we a media company? Are we a publication? Are we a brand? I don't know. We're information providers. Most of our business these days are either on our websites or on our WeChat accounts or via our social media accounts. So we're an information provider and we started this uh, 20 years ago in a very different world, but with the premise of one thing, which is connecting foreigners to local culture and local information. I had a formative experience for me was was right after I finished college, I moved to Taiwan and I had studied Chinese in college and I lived in Taipei and I was a student in Taipei studying and you found two types of people in Taipei. And this is pre-internet, no access to the outside world for foreigners. You found two types of people, the students and the, the people who spoke Chinese, which were very few and far between. And you would find they would be like, they were, wow, this is really a cool place to live. This is so fun. There's cool bands. There's great restaurants. You can go, you know, I, I remember one of, the, one of my most um, treasured memories of Taipei is Taipei had, and they may still have this to this day, but they have these movie theaters that were like out of the 1930s in America. It was like just the biggest screen you've ever seen in your life, you know, and just luxurious seats. And oh, it was fantastic going to the movies. And everything would always have English subtitles. But no one knew this because the media was the only two media outlets at that time were just English language uh, dailies, which just printed AFP and AP and Reuters news, right, from overseas. Didn't talk about anything going on in Taiwan. And then the other section of the expat community at that time was the people who didn't happen to speak Chinese. They were posted there by their job. They were a diplomat. They were a businessman, whatever. And they hated it. They thought Taiwan is the most boring, cultureless, dirty, disgusting place they've ever been in their life. And I and at, at, at that point, I said to myself, like, why is it their perspectives are so different? And it was the simple fact that no one was even trying to reach these people. There wasn't anything out there for them to even... If you wanted to go to a restaurant, it would be a struggle. If you want to go to a movie, there was no movie schedule. There was no... Where do you go get a drink? I don't. There's nothing out there, right? So we started something back then, which is similar to what the Beijinger is now, which was simply just a very low-hanging fruit, help these people who are functionally illiterate in this society. And we did it. It became popular. It became commercially successful. It became imitated. By the end of those five years, 
I found that like that 80% really loved Taiwan. They really enjoyed it because they could access the culture. They could access the food. They could access the, the simple movie theaters. I feel like we had this big impact on people's lives. And so that's been sort of my life's mission ever since, which is like to connect these, the, the foreigner to local culture, understanding. Um, and I, I also think that it's, a, it's become essential to my life's purpose because now my child is in the middle of these two worlds. She's half Chinese, she's half American. And for, for her life, for her lifetime, I really hope these two countries get along, <laughs> you know. Michael, thank you so much for coming by. Will you come by again sometime? Sure, sure, no problem. Awesome, thank you so much. My pleasure. Eric Allen released his debut album this week. He describes the album as a slice of Americana born of memories, loss, and hope. Here is Eric Allen in studio. Still needed finding all kinds of ways. Probably still does need some. I'm Eric Allen, and I'm here with Hyde today, and we are in his lovely studio, getting ready to do some talking. My actual home hometown is in Indiana, Muncie, Indiana, but this album is. There's Los Angeles, uh, Malibu things with my sister. There's songs on that. There's In Me, at the, which is the last song on the album, which is a, directly about New York. And then there's a lot of songs that go through the South, from Georgia to Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. It's really a lot of Americana in, in the East Coast, West Coast, the South. And then, of course, some from the Midwest with Indiana. And this is something I've noticed people, they'll talk about, it really focuses on home. And I don't feel like it does focus on home. I feel like it focuses on homes. And then it focuses on a culture, which is southern, southern bluesy type of culture. There's a lot of melancholy, yeah. I think there's a lot of stuff that's not melancholy either, it's just life. And I'm one of these guys that just thinks like, melancholy is actually a happy thing. Blues is a happy thing to me, you know? Because uh, Towns Van Zandt, who's one of my heroes, basically, in music, uh, made that that statement once. Blues is happy music, and, and I agree with it. I, I think any music that is, I guess what I would call real, given a real picture, whether it's happy, sad, whatever it is, is good. And to me, that's happy. When the night falls again, those stars are gonna watch over me. My grandmother lived uh, in the countryside. Kentucky, back in those days, they called it mountains, but they're, they're big hills is what they are. And, um, 
I just remember those the hills and you'd have to go outside and you know they had like an outhouse and to get water or go to the bathroom you'd go outside and then and it was beautiful when it would rain. I remember it would rain there. It seemed like it was always on a Sunday morning. I don't know why it seems that way, but um, in my memory. And it would rain, and it would rain pretty hard, you know? And um, you'd just hear it raining in the hills. They look beautiful and green, and you smell it. It's nice, really nice. But up in those hills, if you would walk back, there were usually some sort of dirt trails going around somewhere. And when, when I was young, I would go exploring these things. And, if you walk back in there, there were more people living back in there, and and a lot of those, a lot of times they were, they would have stills or they would have things they were selling. It, it might be alcohol, it might not. If you walk up, even as a 14-year-old kid. Just walk up there. Nobody's really going to bother you, you know. But they, but they're not necessarily too trusting if they think that you're not, you don't have some tie from around there, or you're with uh, some sort of authorities or something. Um, and that's real. That I mean, that picture is really where Stillhouse Blues came from. You know, that is the Stillhouse Blues, the picture of it. So I remember that. I haven't been back down there in a long time now. You know, I used to go down there a lot. When I think of Kentucky, I think Mitch McConnell, and I think, you know, right-wing politics. Oh, don't think that. No. Oh, my God. No, no, no. Um, yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of that down there. That's that's a fact. It's, it's, it's definitely a fact. Well, look, that's, I mean, these are part and parcel of the reasons why I, I ended up where I ended up. If you listen to um, what's a bartender's guitar, the second verse in bartender's guitar is a reference kind of to this type of um, culture, you know, that I know your, your mind, it hasn't changed and it never will and the road just kind of goes to nowhere.
this is your debut album. Why? What took you so long? Yeah, well, that, that's the uh, that's the question, isn't it? That's the big question. I think that's that's the million dollar question. That's um, that's why Hello My Soul's on that on that album. You know, Hello My Soul is an ode to spending the better part of 20 years, I would say, trying to write songs that I felt reflected me and my feeling and, and not being able to do it. And um, I would play, I would still play shows, uh, but not writing, not really creating it. And I, always felt that I could. I just couldn't reach in and bring it out. And that's, I say, it's so important. You have to be able to open to be able to reach in there and, and bring it out. And here it is to the world. I don't care what you think about it. I mean, it's good, it's bad, it's embarrassing, whatever it is, it's beautiful, whatever. But you got to be able to bring it out and be happy with it and comfortable with it. And that's not easy to do. You know, and it wasn't for a long time. In 2018, basically, a lot of stuff happened, negative loss kind of things, you know, mother, father, all these, um, uh, house burning down, a lot of things happened. And um, this pro propelled me, I think, um, into opening me up and I was able to write. Would you say it freed you? Freed me? Yeah. I think it's kind of ironic. I mean, and... Not altogether something I like. Like it, it seems like all that uh, loss that happened in a in a pretty short window of time made me feel like um, everything that I had been able to count on at, in the U.S., like the family home sort of thing, uh, was gone. You know. So what's left in the U.S.? Yeah, I have some family still, but I mean, it just seems like everything's going. And somehow that did free me. I sometimes I wonder to myself, why and why in the heck did that have to happen to free me? You know what I mean? But I don't have an answer to that question. I don't know. But I guess it just did, and I guess I was ready at the time. My dad was, um, well, he always would say, you know, 
just working, trying to um, make things better for you kids when I'm gone, and I'm just waiting for the day I can just retire and don't have to worry about things. I think that's really all he was waiting for. You know, it's it's not high high goals. It's it's just very simple. Um, the day when I can kind of be free of the uh, shackles of going into work every night and and, um, and provide for the kids when I'm gone. He worked in a factory. He made um, he made the he mixed the mud um, that would be um, put into batteries, car batteries. He worked for um, GM. I saw him in um, August of 2018. I this was a period where he was um, very sick, and I would go back and uh, um, you know you didn't know if he was gonna. If he was gonna live or not, and go back one time. He lived, and I come back. I go back again. He still lived, and it's very hard at that point when you're so far away to know whether to stay or whether to go. So I saw him in August 2018. He passed away on the first day of October 2018, and I was not there then. I did. I did get back um, for the funeral. I think she, um, 40 years is, uh, it's almost a self-indictment, this song, because I feel bad that I wasn't living in, in, in Indiana uh, when he was uh, older in the last few years of his life. And, and in fact, none of the kids were living in the hometown. I've struggled with this for years, but I, I knew that I really couldn't go back and live there. On a practical level, um, I actually am uh, legally blind. I can't drive. Um, I've never driven a car. And a place like New York and Beijing works really well, whereas a small town in the Midwest, it's much harder to, um, to get around on your own. You know, work in factories, you can't do those things. So, so on a practical level, too, uh, it's, it's definitely always been better for me. I don't know if everybody's this way, but I mean, for me, um, your days go by and your months and years, and eventually um, you just realize that um, you haven't changed so much. And you, of course, you can go visit and everything, but to actually go and, and live um, there over a period of years and make your life, it'd be very hard to do. My job here, my day job, so to speak, is to um, edit books for a Chinese publishing company here. A series of books they were publishing um, were on Fang Dazong, so I edited three of his books. Over the period of time, I just um, became really touched by the whole story, man. 
first of all, the guy going and risking his life to take photo uh, photographs. Uh, he, it was his passion. His family had money. He could have done anything he wanted, but he put his life on the line for his country, basically, to try and get information back to the people. And then his mother, um, once he had gone missing, which was in 1937, his, his mother from that point on um, um, waited basically every day hoping he would come back and thinking he would. It's just hope against hope, right? Everybody knows he's not coming back after so many years. Sure, he won't come back. And she kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and she would just watch the gate. And when the gate would make a sound or would open, she'd look over. It's a pretty sad thing. And and the uh, his younger sister um, also was waiting for him and was preserving. He had left 837, I believe, photos in Beijing or negatives, and they preserved those negatives and kept them. Um, he kept them all, all through. It's in the National Museum now, those numbers. And that went through the Cultural Revolution. It went through a lot of dangerous times of keeping these photos that could have got them in trouble, you know. So it's an amazing story. So that She Waits was, is mainly about the mother, um, but also about the younger sister. Uh, my relationship with my dad was very good. It, it, it was always very good, actually. My mother, um, my mother is a, is a different story. My mother left when I was two years old. Um, she left the state. She gave me to, she came, gave me to my dad and said, I'm leaving the state, and she did. I saw her a few times after that, but um, that was really it. And some people have said to me that that they believe She Waits was a result of this um, situation with my, my birth mother, in that I was affected more because this mother waited for her whole life for him to come back against hope, right? I don't know. You know, when I wrote that song, um, I didn't actually write the song, it was just in my head, and then I spontaneously kind of played something with the words, kind of made it up in, at um, a bar one night, Aussie bar here in town, and, and then it solidified. But I never thought about this angle at all until there, somebody brought it up to me just maybe a month ago. traumas or whatever kind of emotions, especially extreme emotions, I think can find their way into what you're trying to do and they may find it in without you even realizing it. To me, the key is not whether you know what it is or how it's getting in there, but the key is that you as a person are open, you know, to emotions and feelings and if you're open it's like having the door open and then all these things can come in into your your creation right your work you know. 
That was Eric Allen. The new album, also called Eric Allen, is on QQ here in China and available now everywhere you stream music. If you're in Beijing and you hear this on time, his album release party is this Saturday, January 23, at Jianghu Bar. Check the show notes for a link. I have some fantastic guests coming up. Next week, my guest is travel writer Megan Eaves, who's in lockdown in London. This is a really fun conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Megan has a ton of insights on writing, on travel, on China. I'm really a fan. I'll talk to you then. <laughs>